My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley, and it is a wonderful time in my life. I am done with exams. I'm back home, so I'm in a different recording environment. Thank you all for your prayers for last time. Uh update uh did way better than i expected i got an 88.5 on my final exam i just needed the 70 to pass the entire class so uh, i felt really dang good about that uh very happy uh so thanks again for that now i also forgot to mention when i recorded last that it would be thanksgiving that week and i never really think about the calendars so that's on me but like so happy late thanksgiving to everyone i hope you all had a wonderful time with family i know i did got to go to south carolina for a bit hang out with uh, relatives and just enjoy time with them and eat some good food and it was a very pleasant experience overall now uh, as we do go in like i said I, I am in a new recording environment so my chair is a little different it's a little squeakier than the old one and you know me i can't stay still to save my life so Hopefully that doesn't come into the recording, but if it does, that's why it's just how things are going to be going from here on out until about mid-January when I do go back to seminary. Uh, so there we go. Now, if that's all the way, all the housekeeping is done. We're going to be going into Genesis 6, starting in verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So we start off with once again... Some proper nouns being thrown at our way with no next to no context about what they are. So as you can imagine, there is a lot of theory crafting and hypotheses thrown around about what some of these terms mean. I will do my best to explain them without wholly focusing on them, because ultimately, at the end of the day, yeah, sure, there's an answer, but they don't matter as much as other things. But I also don't want to gloss over them and neglect them because they're in the text. They're in scripture. God wrote it down for uh, through Moses for a reason for our sakes. So there we go. So continuing on that grand old idea, I'm just so fond of, of early scripture, bringing things up without properly explaining them comes the term sons of God, which is, like I said, a hotly debated topic alongside the Nephilim for many Christians, for whatever reason they find appealing about the subjects. So with all that in mind, let's start with the first term, and then we'll move on to the second after a brief interlude with something else. Now, obviously, there are many interpretations for what the son of, sons of God mean and who it refers to. I'm going to focus on three. There's a couple more, but they're more, I mean, a fringe subject. They're more fringe. So that's just how it is. The first one, the, one of the more popular ones is that they are indeed fallen angels slash demons who... Uh, which is something that is supported in Job 1 verse 6, which in a CSB says that one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. Now, you don't know your Job. That's OK. It's one of the setting up scenes. 
is that God calls a heavenly council. It appears to be their angels there. Satan is among them. Uh, God allows Satan in his presence despite fighting against him this entire time. So it is also used in that way to describe uh, beings that are above humanity. So that's why some people, most people, well, actually, I should say most people, it really depends on where you're at, come to this verse and say, oh, that's used here that way. Therefore, it's also used here that way. You're going to get a lot of explanations either way. Now, this seems to support this idea that the sons of God were uh, higher beings. They may have been angels who hadn't fallen yet, or maybe they did fall at this time, or they could have been the demons slash fallen angels that rebelled with Satan. God cast them out of the heavens, you know, uh, into hell. But also, you know, Satan is able to work his uh, wrongdoings in this world. He's able to escape like there's the the all the doctrines of hell. There's many things that can go wrong when you bring that up. So. Let's just be as simple as possible in a very uh, unsimple, is that a word? Irresimple? <laughs> Not simple subject like this. Now, like I said, Satan in Job 1 verse 6 is counted among the sons of God. Now, you can argue whether the language is actually saying that, which, of course, you can do with a lot of verses here. But it seems to suggest he's included among them and that God allows him in the presence of the sons of God. So maybe he's an outcast and he's not a son of God, or maybe he is one of them. It seems to say he is. And like I said, there are other present in this heavenly council in the beginning of Job who are not fallen. So using the term sons of God to refer to all of them in that way doesn't totally make sense every single time. I'm just throwing all these out there for you. I do think it does include him among them, but there are definitely arguments against that. But when you look at the original Hebrew as best as we can, sons of God in the original Hebrew is, if I'm remembering correctly, Bene Ha Elohim, which can mean literally the sons of God, as we would associate with that heavenly council, or people associated with God. So Satan in Job acts as someone associated with God. Thus, he can be called a son of God, even if he himself holds no love for his heavenly father. So this doesn't prove the fallen angel idea. So it's kind of similar in that respect of, you know, um, everyone, you know, if you're in a group and you say, oh, he's like your dad and you're his sons and daughters, it's like that kind of gist is what may be one of the interpretations you can take there. Now, if we look at, you know, the Septuagint, which God help us all, <laughs> not my favorite thing in the world, but I don't have to do it anymore unless I choose to. This is the Septuagint is the original Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it translates sons of God as angels. And this was a very common belief in the Jewish communities in the Hellenic and Roman eras. But what this does, if this is true, is it kind of brings up those nasty questions on whether or not demons slash fallen angels can sire children with humans or if they simply possessed someone and then consummated the relationship, which brings up the idea of if it's possible for spiritual traits to be passed on genetically, which could be its own podcast episode on its own. So we'll move past that for now to explore the other interpretations. The second one, and I, these are randomly selected. I Once again, I, I try not to like give away, this is my favorite, even though I do in this sense prefer the first one. We'll get to that in a moment. Second interpretation is that this term refers to humans who acted as if they are God and made other humans worship them as God. Now, proponents of this would point to men like uh, the Lamech descended from Cain, who further polluted humanity with sin with their actions and acted as if they were righteous to do so. I mean, we, know we can look across recorded history. It's common for kings 
and priests to say, hey, you know, we are sons of God or we are God. You look at your Roman emperors, you look at your pharaohs all over the place. There's a common trend. Uh, plenty of Chinese emperors were saw, uh, thought of as divinity themselves. So if you were in that line, you would go, oh, well, he is just like God. So, and that's one of the ways people kind of interpret this verse is humans taking on uh, to their fellow humans the appearance of God being worshipped as God, even though obviously they were not him. And they further polluted humanity, causing them to sin. Now, the last interpretation is that the sons of God were people descended from Seth who initially followed him, but gave into sin by intermarrying with the daughters of man, i.e. the descendants of Cain, who acted in evil and corrupted their husbands. Now, this would be like faithful followers of God in this in the sense would be those who practiced his teachings, who uh, followed him, who worshiped him. So they would be referred to as sons of God because they are affiliated with God in that same sense of, you know, you are sons of God because you go to church, because you gave your life to him and you're seeking after him. That's kind of how they're putting it there. Uh, also, as well, it's kind of like the daughters of men, well, men representing obviously evil and sin. Who better than Cain and his descendants, who it doesn't seem like there was a single one of them, as far as we are aware, who sought after God and followed after him. So this is also a really popular one. The second one's not as much compared to the other two. And I'm seeing there are other fringe ones out there that we don't need to bother talking about. Now, as for me, of the three, I find the first and the third most plausible. The first relies primarily on information, unfortunately, that we're never going to get without understanding things from a more spiritual perspective, you know, such as the possibility of fallen angels impregnating human women or if genetic traits can be changed with spiritual essences, how the heck that works. That the third is the more straightforward option and makes the most logical sense in that it is most likely what happened, but gets covered with biblical imagery that makes us scratch our heads. Now, regardless, as is often the case with Genesis, there is a definitive answer, but you and I are never going to understand it while we are stuck in this mortal coil. So I say I prefer one and three. I give a slight edge to the first option. I do think it was fallen angels that intermarried with humans. However, the heck the genetics of that works. I don't know. I'm not a geneticist and I don't think there's anyone out there who's qualified to do that anyways. But remember that. And that's one thing. This isn't a big issue like salvation or, you know, should we sin so that grace should abound or the nature of the Trinity or why Jesus had to come and die. That's something like there are absolute truths there. We cannot go against them. If you do, you're probably not on the right side. This is something that's more of an intellectual exercise or kind of reveals more about the nature of the person than it does like the quality of their answers at times. So where do you guys land? Let me know. But before we get to the Nephilim, like I said, we're going to have a brief interlude. Let us see what God says about the initial wickedness of humanity. About how his spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. God sees the actions of humans, and he's going to elaborate on what we've been doing in a little bit in a couple of other verses. And as a result of what we've done, he decides to number our days. Now, this will eventually lead to his declaration to cause the flood later in the chapter. God says that humanity, uh, humanity's days are numbered to be 120 years. The question then becomes, is this a blanket statement that humans who used to live for hundreds of years will now no longer be able to live past 120? 
Or is this 120 years before the flood? Like you have 120 years to get your act straight. Uh, and Noah, as we'll eventually find our protagonist here, is going to take that long to build the ark. Or maybe it's who knows at that point in time. Now, the first makes no logical sense if you have ever you know, studied your Bible or if you study humanity around you. We see in Genesis 25, if I remember correctly, Abraham is going to live to be 175 years old. Well, oh, no, there's a contradiction right there. God is wrong. He said one thing and another thing happened. The scripture, uh, scripture is inconsistent. Well, no, that's if you take the wrong view of this. And even in our own lives, like more practically, if we look at more recent history, we see Jean Calment of France died in 1997 after uh, she had lived for 122 years. That is quite the feat. She had a rather funny thing, too, but she said, you know, I waited 110 years to become a celebrity or something like that. The woman had a heart of gold, uh, a great wit to her. So we see, unless she's lying, which I don't see why, because we do have records that uh, tell us she lived here and lived until here. She lived to be past 120 years. So if you think it's literal in that sense of it's uh, humans can't live past 120 years, well, I'm sorry, you're dead wrong. Like the Bible contradicts you. And real life contradicts you as well, even though the Bible is real life too. More recent history contradicts you is how I should put it. Thus, the second interpretation is the only one that makes any sense. But notice God's patience throughout all this, ignoring the 120 years thing. He, regardless of your view for how long humanity has been on the earth, billions of years, millions of years, hundreds of thousands, thousands, uh, 50 days, who, who cares? God has watched as countless evils had been done against his name and his creations and now has had enough. God's patience is astounding, but not limitless. Like humanity is getting exactly what we deserve for acting against him. Again, God's freedom is that he allows us to engage in sin, knowing it's wrong for us, but that doesn't mean we're free from the consequences of committing those sins. And this is a very huge consequence in that the flood is coming. A bunch of people are going to be wiped out. Now, it is time, unfortunately for me, for the Nephilim. Now, if you're like me and you enjoy wild, crazy and fantastical ideas and questions about, you know, cryptids and UFOs, strange entities and the like, and they make you very fascinated to look at them, then you've no doubt stumbled upon people talking about the Nephilim outside of a biblical context. And that are they here today or are they the giants that are reported all across the Americas and all across the world and all these uh, chambers and tombs and, oh, we found a body that was nine feet tall and uh, they had horns and stuff like that. There's a lot of stuff out there that may or not exist. I'm not willing to say one way or the other that these don't or they do until I've done further research into that. But for some reason, that I've yet to understand. This is a weirdly popular idea. And I don't really have, like I said, a a concrete reason for why people really look at this over other mysteries and other topics of discussion that, in my opinion, are far more valuable to discuss. But regardless of my personal feelings on that matter, the point remains that people are obsessed over these strange, poorly explained entities known as the Nephilim. So who the heck are they and why do people care? They show up in this one verse here and there's next to no context for anything to do except they were mighty men, men of renown. That's pretty cool if you just look at that face value. So 
they appear to be born from the unions of the sons of God and daughters of men, which, if the fallen angel slash demon hypothesis is true, heavily implies that such unions created a hybrid species far stronger and mightier than regular humans, comparatively speaking. Like in the text, they're explicitly called out as the mighty men of renown, which also implies that they are far above other humans who can't match their feats. Mighty also doesn't mean good. Now we think of, you know, mighty, like you know, Superman is a mighty person. Like we think of that as a good thing. Or Samson on his best day is a mighty person. That doesn't necessarily mean it's good. Like these are mighty people. They do mighty deeds. Mighty doesn't equal good, though. There are plenty of people throughout history who've done horrendous things, who've led massacres. They've done mighty things. That doesn't make it right. So we associate that word with good, but that's not what the Nephilim are concerned with here. They are indeed continuing on the path. One of the reasons why God ultimately destroys the world because of their mighty actions, the great evil done in their name, the violence done in their name. They also appear to be giants depending on who translate the Hebrew word Nephilim. Some translations may just say Nephilim and others outright change it to giants. There are two reasons for this. The first is that in Numbers 13.33, they are mentioned twice as what appears to be a separate group as they couldn't have survived the flood to have descendants in the days of Israel before the 40 years of wandering the desert. Now, once again, it is possible for them, if it was possible, assuming the fallen angel slash, oh, as I hit my microphone there, that's lovely. The fallen angel slash demon hypothesis is true. Well, if it could happen before the flood, who says it can't happen after the flood? And there'd be a new race of Nephilim there in Canaan. It's certainly probable if that is true. So we're going to look in the God's Word translation for Numbers 13.33. It says, We saw Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak are Nephilim. We felt as small as grasshoppers, and that's how we must have looked to them. Now, context. This is Israel. They've left Egypt behind. They're about to enter the promised land. So Moses sends 12 spies, one from each tribe, to go out and scout the land. You know, a very smart uh, strategy if you're going to conduct war. If you don't know the land you're going to be on, well, guess who knows the land better than you? The people who live there. So they're going to use it against you. So Moses, being a wise man, an intelligent man, sends people he thinks he can trust for the most part. He can trust two of them at the end of this who are going to see, you know, here's how many people are here. Here's the the goods they have here. They have sheep. They have honey. They have uh, all this wonderful food here. That's the report they're expecting because God has told them, hey, you're going to conquer the promised land. However, 10 of the 12 spies sent to explore the land of Canaan mention that these Nephilim in Numbers 1333 are uh, giants but this may just be hyperbole to make the people afraid of attacking the Canaanites. It could be like, you know, that may be slightly taller than average, you know, depending on how it's translated, we get to the Philistines later on in Goliath. It can either be nine feet tall or like six foot something, depending on how you weigh your cubits there, you measure them. It, it's all over the place. So people have very different interpretations, but this may have once again, just been hyperbole. It's like, we felt like grasshoppers next to them and they were mighty men and we were just going to die. And so that's one reason. The second reason that we consider them to be giants is that the Greek translation for Nephilim is typically gigantes, which I believe is also something that can be in Latin, which along with meaning giant is where we eventually get the English word giant. So there you go. Now in the text there, Nephilim, as far as I'm aware in the original Hebrew, 
uh, does not mean giant, but from other contexts in scripture, this name is also given to the people in Numbers, uh, is translated in Greek this way, so they may or may not have been giants. They seem to be, even if they're not, they just seem to be better than other regular people. Now, you may be asking yourself, if people are really concerned with the Nephilim, then that must mean they're important in scripture, right? Like, all, all this time we spent over this one question for people mentioned once in this verse, like, they've got how many times are these important figures mentioned in scripture? Well, my friends, the answer is thrice. Uh, thrice and in two verses. One of those verses, they're mentioned twice. You're welcome. That's what Nephilim are mentioned in the entire Bible. Now, there may be a verse in Ezekiel 32 that might mean Nephilim or it might be a different word meaning something else. So I haven't included it due to its ambiguity. But even then, if it is true, that is three verses, they've been mentioned three times. Excuse me, uh, four times. Once again, twice in one verse. If that's the case, then why do people show so much devotion to finding out more about them? Well, the Apocrypha, that's why. <laughs> Specifically, First Enoch and the Book of Jubilees. We're not going to cover them, but there is some fascinating stuff there written by people who thought they were writing scripture if we're being charitable. I, I would like to think that they thought they were writing that, but some people may have been willingly trying to deceive people. Who knows? And but they're not inspired by God to do so. So unless God allows one of his inspired writers to take something from them, like he does with Jude, like he does seem to vote, uh, quote a verse from first Enoch, like we've covered before. And like God does when Paul quotes Greek philosophers, we don't bring these into legitimate discussions as standing on equal grounds of scripture. There's some cool written scenes in first Enoch mentioning Nephilim and so on and so forth, but they're not going to stand in the same legs as Genesis six, four and numbers 13, 33 to me. As an aside, like just because they are quoted doesn't legitimize the entirety of them. It's more akin to the old blind squirrel finding a nut. That's how it is. Yeah, someone like they managed to trip on something that was actually true. That doesn't mean the rest of it is true by default. That's one of the major reasons why a lot of Protestants, most Protestants, don't include the Apocrypha and their Bibles. So we'll continue on from there to verses five through eight. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God, continuing his thoughts first expressed in verse 3, sees the wickedness of man's sins and man's plans to keep sinning and pronounces righteous judgment on them. Just from the verses presented beforehand, we see that humanity has gotten used to murder, sexual deviancy, and apostasy from God in such a relatively short amount of time. For, for God not to act at all would go against his nature, but... See, remember how long it took for him to get to this breaking point. Now, uh, look over here at this verse in 2 Peter 3, 9, which in the NIV states, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, primarily that verse is considered with the second coming of Jesus, but it also talks about the nature of God overall. And that is something we should be very grateful for. I will keep going back to this verse. Eventually, one day, I'll actually be able to remember it on my own. 
uh, one would hope, and I can quote it from memory. <laughs> but we all know how that's going to happen. Uh, probably not. But it's such an important verse because it reveals the true nature of God himself and that he is slow to his wrath. He's giving people time. He gave generations of time before the flood, even 120 years. They had all that time to repent and turn away from who they used to be, and they didn't. So what is he supposed to do with that? What he said he was going to do. Now, before we get there, let us explore the phrase, the Lord regretted as well as it grieved him. Can God regret an action he made? Like, wouldn't an omniscient, loving God never make a mistake? Well, indeed he wouldn't. The word used for regretted is nakam, which is Hebrew for to be sorry or to console oneself. And that's typically translated into regret or, oh gosh, what was the other one? Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. But there's another way to translate it that, makes it sound like God is making a rep, not a reprehensible action. That's the wrong word. That God is too upset over his choice. Obviously, God looks upon sin in the world with sadness. That's why he grieves in this verse. As it runs contrary to his desires, and we only hurt ourselves when we engage in it. God doesn't want anyone to sin. But to prevent us from being made his puppets with no thoughts of our own, God allows us to make our own decisions. This doesn't mean, however, that he will ignore our evil decisions or our good ones. So he acts on his time and in his own way towards his creations. This example of God regretting is what is known as an anthropomorphism. I hate that word with every fiber of my being. It trips me up so bad with my terrible tongue. This idea, which is to give human characteristics to a divine being. Humans and God are not one and the same. I know it just blew everyone's mind out there. So it can be immensely difficult to describe our relationship to with him. Like, how could I describe my relationship to an ant that I see crawling or to some fungus or to the water or what have you? Like, it's going to be more difficult because those things don't have the ability to interpret things the way that I do. And the same is true of God. To him, we are so small. Yet he loves. That makes no sense. So how am I supposed to describe him to understand a being that I can't fully comprehend? Well, you do so as best as possible. And one way to do that is through anthropomorphism. Now, thus doing so, we describe him in ways we can understand. And God allowed his inspired writers to do so in order that we might grow closer to him. It is a lot easier for me to identify with someone who acts similarly to me So that's why we write that way. That's why those writers did. This isn't lying about God's true nature, but is in fact a useful tool to help us understand the smallest parts of a being so far above us. Now, next up, note how this section ends. God is going to destroy the created beings across the earth, but there remains a remnant who serves him. One man is enough for him to save the entire human race. Because guess what? If this is literally true, Noah is our progenitor. Adam is the ultimate one. Noah is also one because we all came from him. Because of his faithfulness, God allows him and his family to live. Perhaps Noah's family also served God, but he is explicitly singled out as one who found favor before God. Now, as far as I am aware, there is only one other person in the entire Old Testament who is described in the same way, and that is Moses. 
you know, David gets the whole, you know, man after God's own heart, but he's not described in the same way that Noah and Moses are towards another. Found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That sounds pretty dang good. That there is such a small list, though, does worry me. But take heart. All of humanity is saved as a result of this. So we'll go from there to verses 9 through 13. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Notice how it is mentioned that all flesh had been corrupted on the earth. Now, you may notice all flesh includes Noah and his family. They were not born free from sin, and no one besides Jesus ever has, but they were still faithful. Even with their blemishes, even with their sins, they still worship God, and he recognized that. The same is true of us who are his. There's not a single person among us who's perfect, and there never will be, and that's okay. It is not morally good, but it is okay. We are screw-ups, descended from screw-ups, who are descended from screw-ups. Now, the main difference between the screw-ups in the church, who serve God, and the screw-ups in the world who don't know him, is that we should be working to be better. And that's it. That's the main difference. God saved us from ourselves. And we should be striving to be more like him. Noah was attempting and working to be better than the people around him, not to look better than them, not to be seen as more successful, but to be more like God, who is nothing like humanity in the sense of sin, be existing in our hearts. Now, God's examination of humanity had found everyone wanting as he prepared to wipe them out with the flood, yet... He still had mercy on us and gave us a way out of his righteous wrath. It was true then, and it is most definitely true now. But, as we've noted before, God still must punish sin. We don't have to like that countless men, women, and children are going to die and ultimately end up in hell as a result of the coming flood. Like, I certainly don't. But we do need to understand it was necessary and just. None of us deserve to live so God is righteous to let us live and to let us die. Either way, we were given an opportunity that never should have happened in a perfectly fair system. But, as I've said before, as you're probably tired of hearing, because God is unfair, and that is a very good thing, he gives us all the opportunity to live, no matter how short or how long, so that there, will, there is always hope we will find him. And from there... We'll finish this out by going through verses 14 through 22. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and not with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort 
into, as I flip the page there, that's lovely, the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. God commands Noah to build an ark in the midst of a world that has no context for what's about to happen, has never heard of what is coming before, and certainly doesn't believe in a God that could cause it. Let us recall that this is before the Tower of Babel. So humanity speaks one language. You know, there may be cultural barriers that have formed since Adam and Eve's lives. Like this could be countless centuries, uh, thousands of years, depending on how you interpret how long it's been in these generations. Like whole civilizations, whole countries could have risen up since Adam and Eve entering the world. And now we got to Noah. Like who knows how the technology of the world is at this point in time. It could be miles above because it's so much easier to get things done when you understand one another. But humanity isn't listening to the one person they should be just because they can all communicate with one another and they may have, you know, caused some boundaries between each other, maybe risen up into different nations or tribes or what have you. It doesn't excuse anyone not being able to hear and comprehend that they should be worshiping God. How much easier would it be for us to send missionaries across the world if we all spoke the same language? How much easier would it be? Well, it depends on how you interpret scripture, because right now it doesn't look like that easy. Because everyone speaks the same language, but you would think and you would hope it would be a lot easier to do so because you can all understand each, each other. But instead of listening to that sound advice, humanity has united itself in its sins and has been found wanting. Noah, to contrast them, does the absurd and builds a boat on dry land. And that's ludicrous to a human perspective. But Noah was faithful. Now let's look at the ark for a little bit. It's been an important figure in Jewish and Christian history for years. It was intended to be filled with all animal life and Noah's family. We, we'll get into how that is or isn't possible in Genesis 7, if I remember. But for now, let's look at how big it is. Depending on how you measure it, the ark is about 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and about 45 feet tall. Now, comparatively, in one sense, let's look at the Titanic, which was 882 feet long, 92 feet wide, and 175 feet tall. Now, you look at the Titanic. They had however many hundreds of people working on that. Well, Noah might have had the help of his sons. Maybe, you know, some of their wives and maybe some of their children were, you know, good with, you know, engineering. Maybe. Who knows? No wonder it took about 120 years to get this done. It's just one guy. Maybe with help. This was a massive undertaking, especially without modern tools to create. Now, for something that can help you, obviously, this is not the same time. It's a couple thousand years later. Look at Phoenicia. Phoenicia is a very fascinating culture. Uh, they are very well known as merchants. They traveled the Mediterranean. They were seen as like the best of the best. Like everyone wanted to trade with them. Everyone wanted their vessels. They, by comparison, this, this powerful trading company that neighbors Israel, you know, post Joshua's invasion, they had ships that were about 114 feet long. Although they didn't have larger ships than that. They also had workers trained to build seaworthy vessels that lasted for years. Noah had no such training, and in fact, probably lived in a landlocked country. So, no wonder it took him as long as it did to build the ark. Now, all I can say in the midst of this is that I'm glad God called him to make it and not me, because humanity would be extinct right now. 
I'm worthless with my hands if it doesn't involve typing. That's it. I probably said it before. You don't want me on your handyman projects. You want me to be away from everything before I, you know, destroy the entire house or set everything on fire. But God chose the right man for the job and he followed through with it. Now, as we end this chapter, we see a special covenant made between God and Noah, as well as orders given by God to Noah to look after his family and the animals while they are on the ark. God promises Noah protection and Noah follows through with his directives for which he is commended. This is a bonkers idea. It makes no sense, but Noah does it. We don't really get much of his personality in this chapter. Like, I don't even think he speaks at all. Uh, he's more kind of, as far as the narrative is concerned, a passive voice. Uh, but it is clear that God's judgment of his character was spot on because he does what God commands swiftly and faithfully. And that makes all the difference. That's why he found favor in God's eye. And with that, we're done with Genesis 6. So, please, if you get a chance, leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice just to help us with the ratings there. If you're interested in my own fiction writing, you can find my works at StarvingWritersGuild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, and check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries Podcasting Network. You can contact me at LetNothingMoviePodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you on accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you. Hey guys, are you interested in podcasting but don't know where to go? Well, check out Zencaster.com and go ahead and make an account there and use special promo code Let Nothing Move You, all caps. That way you can get 30% off of your next deal to go ahead and set things up so you can figure out how to edit stuff using Zencaster.com to host your stuff to get things done there. So check out Zencaster.com, use special promo code Let Nothing Move You. All right, see ya.